You know, one thing that writing a letter has in common with going on a pilgrimage is that it takes time. A pilgrimage is not a pilgrimage if it doesn't take time, because it's very much about the process. And of course, we live in a world in which um, much of our communication happens digitally, happens instantaneously. Um, it doesn't necessarily require a lot of thought. And uh, a pilgrimage is all about thought. It's all about reflection and engaging the spirit. And I do think that there's a spiritual element to writing letters that is lost in digital communication. When you sit down to pen a letter, you end up drawing something out of your own self, your own heart, uh, in a way that is not required by email or social media posts. I'm Philip Zoutendam, and this is The Erdcast, an Erdman's podcast about books and the people who make them. Today on the podcast, Abigail Carroll, author of A Gathering of Larks. Abigail Carroll is an author and poet who makes her home, quite intentionally, in Vermont. Her new book, A Gathering of Larks, is a witty and searching collection of lyrical letters, as Richard Rohr calls them, to Francis of Assisi. These 40 poetic epistles seek the Francis behind and before the ceramic garden statues and the romanticized saint. They explore and celebrate and question his radical life of faith, and they chart a pilgrimage in Carol's own faith as well. Abigail Carroll, welcome to the Eardcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So the first question I usually ask authors is how they would describe or distill their book in a sentence. Now, usually these are kind of thesis-driven academic tomes, so maybe that's a bit of a different task with a collection of letters, but how would you do that? How would you describe or distill this book in a sentence? I would say that A Gathering of Larks is a sequence of 40 letters to St. Francis of Assisi, and they tell the story of his life, but they also tell kind of the story of a summer in my own life when I broke my foot and I was stuck in my backyard pretty much, grappling with um, the themes of beauty and brokenness in my life and in the world around me. I want to hear a little more about this, the story of this broken foot um, in a minute, but if, if I've got the timeline right, I think that you were already working on some kind of book related to Francis before that incident. Is that right? Uh, well, I did write the first two or three letters before breaking my foot, but then when I broke my foot, the letters really took on um, their own, they took me on their own journey, so to speak. So what was it about Francis that drew you to him as a subject for a book in general? And then how did that book become a book of letters to him? Well, when I was 10 years old, my family lived in Europe for a year. My dad had a sabbatical in Europe and we spent a week in Assisi and it was just a magical, magical week for me. And we stayed in a convent and we were tourists. We weren't pilgrims, but it felt a little bit like being a pilgrim, um, walking the streets that St. Francis walked, going 
to the places um, where various episodes of his life unfolded and learning the story of his life there as opposed to in a book or in church or, um, you know, in the stained glass windows of, of a church. Um, and so I found myself really intrigued by St. Francis during our time in Assisi. I think I was familiar with the birdbath St. Francis um, before that experience. It was in Assisi where I really um, encountered the complex, eccentric, radical, um, do-good thief that St. Francis was. And um, fast forward to just a, a few summers ago, I was reading a book of poems by the poet from British Columbia, Susan McCaslin, who wrote a chapbook of uh, letters to the, the poet William Blake. And so these poems as letters or letters as poems um, really intrigued me. And I thought to myself, I want to do the same thing she's doing. Who would I write my letters to? And not long after asking myself that question, Francis really emerged. And I think it was because I remembered that wonder of encountering him as a child, but realizing that I, I really didn't know sort of the story behind the man. I knew a little bit about his life, but I wanted to sort of get under his, his halo a little bit, as I mentioned in the book, and uncover his story. And so I went to the library. I got a few biographies out. I got a movie or two out. I just wanted to familiarize myself with his life story. And uh, I found myself really intrigued. And I imagined that this would probably produce three or four or five poems that were letters and that, you know, ideally would, um, would find the favor of the editor of a literary journal and end up in the pages of a literary journal. And then when I broke my foot, as I said, um, the project really took on um, a nature of its own. Your first book, uh, it was a book called Three Squares, is that right? That's right. And that, that was not a collection of poetry. No, that was a history. And so how did you go from writing history to poetry? Poetry is the first genre that I remember writing in when I was five, six, or seven years old, probably six or seven. I just remember writing poetry. I specifically remember a moment when I was writing a poem um, at my grandparents' house in Long Island. And... Um, my grandfather uh, being very taken by this and sending it in to the newspaper, which then published it. And I'm sure it was published on account of its cuteness rather than its literary value. It's always been my heart language. Um, I think when I was in high school, I remember wanting to say that when I grew up, I wanted to be a poet because people are always asking you when you're graduating, well, what is it that you want to do with your life? What do you want to study? And I remember thinking it sounded more erudite to say historian, and I did like history. <laughs> and that became a self-fulfilled prophecy, I think. So for me, writing this book is really coming back. It's coming back to the genre that I love the most and that I think I value because it engages the spirit and because it gives me a lens with which to to see um, to see the world in ways that prose does not. I'd love to explore this story of you breaking your foot actually through one of these letters um, which you've written about that experience. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to read the letter um, that starts, Dear Francis, I have fractured my navicular. Sure. Dear Francis, 
I have fractured my navicular, watering plants. From the counter to the table, the table to the bathroom, all travel has become a pilgrimage of sorts. You must have cut your fingers hauling stones through Assisi's cobbled streets, then down the hill. Did you twist your wrists from the weight of the bricks? I imagine you crushed a few toes, but as penance for your knighthood dreams, not to mention the cloth you stole, positively refused to let anyone know. If good has come of my injured foot, and I hesitate to add sprained left thumb, it is this, the catbird has become my friend. I've learned to love his sometimes frog-like call, though he has yet to actually appear. And now I have more time to write these lines to you, Francis. I fear for those who have no time to think, no cause to pray. What do you say to one who has never been broken, to unfired, unshattered clay, with hope injured? What is a navicular? <laughs> I don't know which bone that is. It's a very small bone, sort of at the top of your foot, and I happened to break my right foot, which just meant that uh, I couldn't drive, so I was kind of forced to be a contemplative that summer. And how does one how does one break a navicular watering plant? It doesn't seem like a full contact sport. No, apparently it's um it's common among uh, ballet dancers, and that would have been a much more glorious way to break my navicular. Um, but no, I simply. Um, turned my foot on a step and landed on it kind of the wrong way. So I, I think there are at least a couple of ways that this accident contributes to the book. One is something that you've written about actually in a blog post for Erdman's uh, and, and also in the introduction to the book, I believe, where you just say that not being able to go anywhere made you sit still and, and think about things. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little more about how that forced contemplative existence, as I think you called it, contributed to this book's existence. Yeah, well, I think that I think that breaking my foot was a little bit fortuitous in the sense that um, I found myself at home in a kind of forced sabbatical. Um, I was self-employed, but I was also underemployed at the time. And I also lived on the second floor. And so it was either going to be inside for a long time or outside for a long time because I couldn't go up and down those stairs a lot. And uh, a neighbor was kind enough to um, actually give me uh, a chase lounge that he was no longer using. And I set it up in my backyard and, and it just became my practice to spend kind of long hours of the day um, reading, mostly reading the biographies of St. Francis and, um, and writing and then also just observing and saying hi to my neighbors as they happened to come within, you know, ear contact or, or, or be nearby. But, of course, I saw people and, you know, friends visited and I, I got to, got out to church. People gave me rides. But I, I just ended up at home quite a bit. I think that that really brought writing these letters to a whole new level for me because it brought me in touch with my own brokenness. And I think that I, I had really been just mostly curious about the life of St. Francis. I just intellectually wanted to know a little bit more about him. But suddenly I found myself with a spiritual need and um, sort of also a need for companionship, being a little bit lonely as I was that summer. And so 
these poems kind of take on that tenor. Yeah, it's the, it's that element of brokenness that seems like it's the the second way that that accident contributes to this book. And I wonder if you think that experience in some way helped you relate to or imagine Francis more deeply? I think that perhaps just that sense of need, just the sense of need and the sense of vulnerability. You know, when you're when you're face to face with your limitations, and especially if you're physically immobilized, you you're forced to perceive the world around you a little bit differently. And simple things become more important and mundane things can become more beautiful. And so while there's certainly a frustration that I experienced, you know, just trying to make dinner for myself and then realizing that I needed an ingredient that was on the other side of the kitchen and that's not so easy to get to when, you know, you're on crutches and you are afraid of bumping your foot. Um, There's also a kind of beautiful satisfaction that you experience partaking of that meal that um, it's the same thing, I think, in, in the nature of my backyard. I'd actually gone into this project with a lot of discontent in my life about where I was living and where I was in my life and being forced to um, enjoy the little things like the catbird that I mentioned in the poem who appeared, um, not visibly, but appeared through his song day after day and then eventually I would get glimpses of him really became special, um, really became uh, a companion to me. And, uh, and so I think that um, there is something about brokenness that primes us to experience beauty in a new way. Um, I was also thinking recently about um, brokenness and I was thinking about the Beatitudes. And I was thinking about, you know, maybe there's a Beatitude that just accidentally didn't get recorded about brokenness, or maybe it's the beatitude that underlies um, the other beatitudes, but, you know, it would, it would read, uh, blessed are the broken for they shall be renewed. Um, and I think that brokenness really uh, becomes a stage for renewal, and we can't experience renewal apart from brokenness. Um, and so I think that that experience of brokenness really primed me to, like Francis, pay attention and, uh, and just be in, in touch with the, the joy of, of the little instances of nature, even in my own little backyard, without going to a national park or going for a hike in the mountains, just the shrubbery, just the, you know, the, the seasonal flowers, um, just the bees. So I'd like to talk a little about how these letters or poems were formed. Did you start with a moment in Francis's life or a moment in your life, or did you start with a particular line? Just wonder how how some of these would, would go from start to finish. Sure, it just so happens that the first poem in the book is also the first poem that I wrote. And uh, I had broken my shower head, and I just, I think I had been... Uh, hanging some wet jeans that I had washed by hand on the shower head and it broke and then I got lazy and I didn't fix it and so for a little while instead of showering in the conventional fashion I was just fauceting like a bucket of water in the bathtub and just cupping it and 
pouring it over myself. And um, it's actually a really pleasant way to wash. And so then I didn't really mind that I was lazy. And then when I broke my foot, I wasn't in a position to fix it. And so, um, but that surprisingly took on a sort of spiritual quality, that experience. I, I remember thinking, this is like how St. Francis would have um, washed because he would have washed in streams and rivers, at least in fair weather. And this is how people have washed, you know, for centuries. And this is how many people wash around the world even today. And there's something about poetry, I think, that has the ability to reframe the ordinary as extraordinary or the profane as holy. And so it seemed um, appropriate to write about this in terms of poetry, but it also seemed appropriate to write to Francis about it because it sounded a little corny, you know, on the outset, but I just had the sense, well, Francis would understand. And so that was actually the first poem that I wrote. And then I began to um, investigate his life in the letters and to ask him questions about the various episodes that I read about in his life. And uh, I really enjoyed probing those episodes and, and putting myself in his shoes and pushing him in a sense. I just was interested in pushing his story. I wanted to really get into his story. Yeah, so many of the questions, many of the poems take on uh, the tone of a question. I really loved all the different names you use in address for St. Francis. It's, it's not always just, you know, dear Francis. I, I wonder if you could run through some of the some of the names you used in address that uh, were your favorites or, or were some of the most meaningful? You know, I think the most meaningful was just calling him by his Italian name, Francesco, um, because I just, I see, I see a youth. I see uh, an innocent, you know, um, young boy and somebody who's just like a friend, just on a first name basis. Um, and uh, I think my least favorite was actually Dear Francis, <laughs> because it just feels cliche to begin with. Um, St. Francis's name is so well known. Um, but there are others that I use, like Peacemaker or Lover of Lady Poverty. And each one reflects something in the poem that um, has to do with his character. I'm Philip Zoutendam, and you're listening to The Erdcast. My conversation with Abigail Carroll continues in a moment. For the next two weeks, you can order her new book, A Gathering of Larks, at 30% off. Just click the link in the episode notes and use the code LARKS. So you were mentioning exploring Francis and, and moments in his life and biography and probing them and even questioning them. And I think there's a an interesting and, and even delicate balance in the book between a kind of belief and a kind of skepticism when it comes to Francis. And in fact, in the introduction, you talk about separating man from myth. And I wonder how you went about doing that both as historian and as poet. I decided early on not to judge the story. Um, there are times when the poems take on a little bit of cynicism. 
and I wanted to be real about what I found hard to believe or I found um, a little bit fanciful perhaps. Um, but, and I also wanted to make room for the reader who's coming uh, and, and approaching these poems perhaps from a slightly more cynical perspective, but I also wanted to give Francis the benefit of the doubt because when you're having a conversation with somebody, you don't come to them with the answers, you come to them with the questions and you come to them giving them the benefit of the doubt. And I think that um, I also wanted to come to him in some ways as a child, um, as that 10 year old who had spent a week in Assisi and found herself believing in miracles and knights and saints, and but wanting to know more. Um, and so I think that in some ways this is a conversation with my own heart and it's it's a conversation that has room for doubt i think that faith always makes room for doubt and that if there isn't a doubt that there isn't necessarily faith because faith um faith is a dance with doubt and so i think that i'm um I'm mostly just interested in, in hearing Francis's side of the story. What does it mean or how is it possible to write letters to someone who can't necessarily answer back? Well, I didn't think about that too much when I was writing these letters, but um, of course it's true that I wasn't expecting any um, <laughs> responses. Um, I think that it means that you're writing it for your own sake, that it's a spiritual exercise in this case, but that it does have value. Um, and in some ways, I think that the letters themselves and the questions themselves become their own answers and their own responses. It, it reminds me a little bit of prayer, which is a, perhaps a dangerous parallel to make because I do believe in a God who responds. But I also have the experience of praying and asking and asking and asking until I can't ask anymore. And then finding that I don't really need to ask because what I need is the God who I'm praying to and who is there. And that's the answer to my prayer. And so in some ways, these letters, I think, are their own answers and their own responses. In this kind of questioning of Francis's life and some of the elements, some of the specific elements actually, in his hagiography. I'm wondering if there's a, a way that you decide what to accept from that. How did you decide, for instance, um, as you mentioned in one of the poems, that the story about this crucifix speaking to Francis is a story that you'll accept or you'll, you'll believe in? You know, I don't think it's necessary to believe or accept the story of a particular, perhaps a miraculous moment in um, Francis's life or, or another life um, to engage the story. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying by saying that, that I don't believe that that happened. But at the same time, I do believe that another person's subjective experience of the divine is in some ways not our business. Um, and to judge that just doesn't feel productive. Um, in fact, I prefer to give 
the benefit of the doubt to the very utmost, to the extent that I can, I will. And I, and I think I do give Francis the benefit of the doubt um, for the most part. Uh, I, I'm honest about my questions, but I think that some of the questions are, are really trying to be open. They're more questions than they are statements of skepticism. Um, I think the hardest poem for me to write and the hard, hardest letter, I guess, uh, was the one on the stigmata. And I think that that was the, the, the one part of the hagiography around the life of St. Francis that I struggle with the most. And I don't think it's because um, I don't believe in the miraculous, because I very much do. Um, but it was more of a matter of not under, not being able to really understand why, not understanding the why. And so, you know, that poem itself was its own pilgrimage. <laughs> I spent a lot of time thinking about, well, what kind of tone would I address a letter to St. Francis um, about this particular moment in his life? What kind of tone would it be? A tone of skepticism? Um, would it just be a, 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 a letter that tells the story? Or, you know, would it be a letter about something in my own life that tries to, to bridge that gap? And then I came to this point of just realizing who am I to question another person's encounter of the divine? And even more than that, who am I to question the divine's encounter with another, with a, with a person? Um, who am I to um, judge how God chooses to reveal himself um, to somebody? And, uh, and so actually writing that poem, although it was perhaps the hardest, also felt among the most satisfying. And I think it's because um, there was just the sense of the poem being pregnant with the possibility of belief, even if the belief itself is, is uh, not perfect. That was definitely one of my favorite letters uh, in the book. I wonder if you'd be willing to read that one. Sure. Find it. Dear Francis, on the occasion of your stigmata, as if you could know why a seraph should appear, why its six dazzling wings should enfold the dying Christ, as if you could ask the mountains jutting rocks what provoked those lonely hills to illuminate your fast. Because I cannot say. Why love and pain go hand in hand. I will not doubt the sky tore up in flames, that day of joy and blood, nor that you bore his wounds from one unpierced. So you've mentioned in um, this interview and also in your, your blog post for Erdman's that letter writing in itself can be a, a sort of pilgrimage. I wonder if you could talk a little more about that. How, how is that true? You know, one thing that writing a letter has in common with going on a pilgrimage is that it takes time. A pilgrimage is not a pilgrimage if it doesn't take time because it's very much about the process. And of course, we live in a world in which um, much of our communication happens digitally, it happens instantaneously. Um, it doesn't necessarily require a lot of thought. And uh, a pilgrimage is all about thought. It's all about reflection and engaging the spirit. And I do think that there's a spiritual element to writing letters that 
is lost in digital communication. And I think it's just that reflection element that when you sit down to pen a letter, you end up drawing something out of your own self, your own um, heart, uh, in a way that is not required by email or social media posts. Um, and so uh, that's one example in which writing a letter is a little bit like a pilgrimage. The subtitle to your book is Letters to St. Francis from a Modern Day Pilgrim, which identifies you as a pilgrim through these letters. And I wonder what you would say about where you started and where you went by writing this book. Well, I think that um, in some ways writing this book was a pilgrimage to the childhood wonder that I experienced as a 10-year-old in Assisi and just to childhood wonder general. And it was just this desire to be in touch with that again and to reclaim it for my adulthood. And, um, you know, I think that adults are really good at being cynics and that children are really bad at being cynics. And I wanted to be that child who's really bad at being a cynic and to, you know, engage a spiritual um, theme from that perspective. Um, and so in some ways, this is a pilgrimage to my childhood um, and to my understanding of St. Francis as a 10-year-old and then uh, bringing that up to date. Um, and it was also in some ways a pilgrimage of healing, just sort of as I let my foot heal and that pilgrimage through brokenness, um, through the experience of limitation and loneliness that accompany brokenness. And um, it was also in some ways a pilgrimage to my um, upbringing in the Catholic Church and kind of a bridging of that uh, gap having been uh, worshiping in Protestant communities of faith for most of my adult years. And in some ways it was just, it was a very healing experience actually to bridge that divide and to see it less as a divide and to begin to reclaim some of the rich heritage um, in my Catholic upbringing. You mentioned uh, bringing your understanding of Francis up to date from your first acquaintance with him as a 10-year-old. How has your understanding of Francis grown since then? One of the things that I really enjoyed learning about when I was studying the life of St. Francis and then asking him about in these letters was not just his accomplishments um, or the things that he did that were extremely compelling, but also his failures and his mistakes. And I just love that he's an example of a very holy person who made a lot of um, really awkward mistakes and who attempted really idealistic things that failed whether it was um, when he uh, practically stole um, his father's expensive fabrics, his father being a cloth merchant, uh, to sell them and to pay for the rebuilding of a church in this incredibly beautiful act of devotion, but that was tainted by the fact that he, he you know, uh, paid for it by uh, theft. And, um, and of course he makes up for that. And, uh, and there are other examples of failure in his life, like when he tries to halt the Fifth Crusade single-handedly, and he travels to Egypt, and he actually miraculously gains um, an audience with the Sultan, 
and does not accomplish what he has set out to accomplish, and yet becomes an incredible example of peacemaking. And so I find particularly inspirational um, the failures and the mistakes that he makes. And I would also say, um, you know, kind of going back to when we were talking about miracles, um, there are certainly a number of miracles associated with Francis's life. Um, some of them are dreams and visions, um, the stigmata, um, etc. But for me, what always attracted me to him, I think, were his conversion experience, his embracing of a leper, which was so counterintuitive, not just in general, but to him, because he himself had loathed lepers and found himself repulsed by them, and then felt compelled to approach this leper on the side of the road and embrace him or kiss him, as some of the um, accounts say. Um, and the fact that, you know, he gave up this very sizable inheritance as the son of a wealthy cloth merchant, uh, gave back even the clothes on his, his back to his father, went off into the, the woods singing and didn't come back. Um, for the rest of his life, he lived um, a life of poverty, a life that was very close to nature, and a life completely dedicated to following the gospel as he understood it. And so for me, there are these beautiful stories of miracles in his life, and yet to me, the, that's the most compelling story and that really is for me the miracle of the life of saint francis that miraculous embedded in the ordinary is i think what really attracts me to him i wonder if you have any thoughts about the reader kind of going along on this pilgrimage and and where you hope the reader might end up in reading this book so i felt as though saint francis became a spiritual companion for me on my journey through brokenness. And, and I would love for these poems to become uh, a companion for somebody, perhaps along a short stage of their road, and um, also just open up the, the opportunity for people to see um, the possibilities for spiritual friendship. I do think that our spiritual formation it's something that we go to books for. It's something that we uh, we practice spiritual exercises to accomplish. Um, we study the Bible. We go to church. And we uh, do sacraments, or you know, we follow our various traditions. But I think that spiritual formation um, really happens well when it is in companionship with somebody else who's on the road, and so. Um, I hope that uh, that people who read the book will um, see the value of spiritual friendship. Abigail Carroll, thank you so much for talking with us today about your new book, A Gathering of Larks. Thanks, Philip. It was a pleasure. Abigail Carroll is the author of the new book, A Gathering of Larks. Don't forget, you can order the book at 30% off when you use the code LARKS in the Erdword store. Thanks for listening to the Erdcast. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, make sure to leave us a good review. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode. Until then, read good books and show some love to the people who make them.